0: This is the most interesting topic in the room. I am Jason at the ready. I'm going to talk to you today about some very fun memories uh, backed up with some interesting facts. But first, let's get to the sponsors. Today's sponsor is My Mouth. My Mouth is sponsoring this podcast it wants to thank you for allowing it to make noises in your ear holes. Uh, that is not a, a sexy thing that I'm saying. I am uh, acknowledging that it takes everything from the brain all the way down to the, uh, the tongue and the lips uh, and a few other things to make the voice happen. So there, sponsored by My Mouth that's enough for today that's more than enough sponsorship that's a lot of sponsorship right there because it could just go on and on and on the mouth anyway Lollapalooza so Lollapalooza it exists in the world amazingly still it's 2018 first one happened in 1991 that is a long time ago and for anybody who uh, anyone who's a bit on the younger side Lollapalooza if you're even aware of it it is a festival that happens once a year in Chicago and it is very a very large festival nowadays but um, on a certain level to my mind, it is just another one of the many festivals that exist now. So, I don't really have much to say about Lollapalooza in its current form. I will uh, I will give, Perry Farrell his due for making a a festival that has lasted. Uh, given it's had its some serious legs and um, for one of the the big things he'll be known for he'll be known for that for setting that up and I know that he uh I, I don't know what his involvement is anymore I think he's still involved but Lollapalooza starts in 1991 and it was uh as it was in the first few years it was a traveling festival. One of the reasons why it is now stationary is because a traveling festival of the scale that they were pulling off uh, was not much of a moneymaker, I don't believe, and the logistical nightmare of many bands and multiple stages traveling across the country, uh, and as it grew, uh, more than bands, uh, sideshows, and all kinds of crazy things going on, logistically, it was uh, a lot to handle, and... I don't think they were making a lot of money. Um, anyway, what is important to me in this moment is 1991, the first Lollapalooza, which in my memory, I do believe the intent was a one-time only tour. It wasn't really designed to go beyond that uh, that tour. And it was exclusively... Advertised to the masses, at least in my brain, uh, as the retirement performances of Jane's Addiction, which is why I went, and why I think a lot of people went. Actually, it was the the end of Jane's Addiction. There would no longer be a Jane's Addiction. Now, of course, in two thousand eighteen, we know that that's not true. Eventually. Jane's addiction was brought back to life as a, a three-piece, as a four-piece, but the bass player, the original bass player, Eric Avery, was no longer in the band, and Jane's really, as a fan, Jane's really was never the same until 2008 when they toured with Nine Inch Nails for Nine Inch Nails' final tour, which now in 2018 we know is not true either because Nine Inch Nails is back. But uh, during that tour, Eric Avery was back and I did have the privilege of seeing them again as the original lineup. And it was as awesome as it was back in the day. It was like going home again. So let's talk about this. 1991. Let's talk about alternative music. Um, uh, Amazingly enough alternative nation is something that perry farrell himself uh verbalized essentially created the concept he spoke it out loud and it became a thing it became real alternative music you get um through the 90s from that moment forward it it really gets marketed the 90s initially started out as a there were some really original things going on and it quickly devolved into the music industry propagating a their version of it uh, in order to generate massive amounts of money which they did so alternative became the sellable uh, word anything that got uh, tagged as alternative became the the new big thing and that was what was going to be pushed as Uh, what you need to buy. You gotta have this stuff. You gotta buy this album. You gotta buy this CD. You gotta have it. It's alternative. Alternative to what? (laughs) Well, I mean, I'll make the argument that alternative music's always existed. I mean, whatever that means. Alternative to mainstream? Yeah, I mean, that's the idea. Something exists... That is listened to by a large number of people. That is accepted as the popular music of the day. There tends to be a certain form to whatever that music is. Um, it appeals to a wide uh, denominator of people. And you have you know, quote unquote mainstream music. And I'll go back to uh, orchestral music. To um uh, what is considered now classical music uh stravinsky uh, strauss schoenberg debussy all these cats were making what was an alternative to the uh the mainstream of the day taking what was known and expected in a sense and bringing uh, on a, an alternative to that, looking at different ways to, uh, to bend and pull the sound and challenge people, make people think a little bit, make them maybe a little uncomfortable, because that's what artists do. They, they, uh, they challenge the norms, what you might uh, expect to be, uh, what you might expect to hear, somebody's going to come along and say that, is boring, number one. It doesn't interest me. I want to challenge the structure. I want to challenge the, the expectation of the audience. So alternative music is always there. Uh, I'll bring it uh, f- you know, forward into popular pop music, right? We get uh, from the 50s. You know, we got jazz, and obviously jazz in and of itself kind of becomes... Uh, jazz is... It's just such a huge thing. I mean, I can go, I can, I can get myself lost trying to talk about this, but I'm I'm gonna just isolate this uh, into my my little uh, scenario that I'm weaving here. Um, you get, uh, I would consider one point of uh, example of alternative music uh, evolving. You've got the in the '40s, uh, jazz has existed up to this point. It's gone through many iterations with um uh, it's mostly a dance uh, music very very popular in the 20s in the late teens world war one-ish but it popular because of segregation white musicians pick up jazz and play their own version of it Uh, so what is really considered the mainstream of jazz the big big jazz is white a a white uh, dominated uh, form of jazz that's uh, because of segregation separate from African Americans, separate from the black experience of jazz Uh, and it is the jazz is born and raised of the African American community Um, but to the point here I'm trying to make you've got danced jazz whether it's white or black and in the 40s these cats uh, start to play late-night gigs. After hours, very late, you know, 3, 4 a.m., after everybody's done their shows and their big bands, these cats get together and start to blow, and it's a free-form situation, small groups, and you get bebop. Now bebop, I would consider at that time, is extremely in an alternative form of jazz, alternative form of music. It is not popular. It is it is a thing that just sort of organically happens, and over time, it becomes uh, acceptable to the point that, along with the economics of the time, of how hard it is to to get big bands around the country and pay everybody that the economics uh, start to fold the big band scene at the same time that these small groups are becoming popular and through the 50s jazz evolves into these small groups and bebop what was alternative becomes mainstreamed so Uh, and then with jazz like i said jazz goes on forever in a way i mean it's like it'll evolve it evolves (laughs) there's alternatives to itself born and and spread and raised and it's it's this evolution Uh, but i think the the most salient point that i could pick for jazz is that in the 40s big band dance swing turns to bebop small group very experimental and, and, and then that, that's the jazz. <laughs> so within uh, rock and roll, we, you know, in the fifties, you got rock and roll in the sixties, it evolves, but uh, it's a very interesting time. Uh, alternative music at that point, I'm going to lay uh, a big one on the Velvet Underground they are the uh, the avatars of alternative music really they they set the the bar in such a way amazingly enough when you with hindsight we can go back and look at the the velvet underground and the sounds that they were making and you can hear over time that uh, their influence was so completely outsized for what their Imprint was at the time that they were a band. Uh, and they didn't fit in with any of the conceptions of popular music at the time. And they were consciously, willfully making music that didn't fit those norms. Uh, one of the most, uh, w- well, not one of the most, but one of the members, uh, John Cale, is a very important. Ab- player in there because he comes from he brings he brings the viola and he's coming out of uh the out of uh, a group in new york in the 60s called the dream syndicate led by lamont young that was uh, experimental avant-garde doing a lot of uh, drone droning of instruments you know you're taking an instrument and Instead of playing a melody, you, you you know you hang on one note. What happens when you hang on one note for an hour? What does that do to somebody? What does that do to the listener? What does that What does that do to your brain? Uh, some people would just say that's oh, it's nothing. It's not music. It's boring. there's there's nothing there. Others would say that it is, it, it evokes a dreamlike quality. You get lost in something, uh, in the sound itself. And, uh, as you listen to a single tone over time, obviously that tone is going to have different nuances to it, depending on the, um, the, the intensity at which that is played or how light it is played, uh you can easily start to hear uh subtones arriving into your ears whether they exist or not and as time goes on if you really are listening you can get uh, your brain will take you on a journey at that point you you the your focus uh starts to maybe wander a little bit um and a single tone can uh, can guide you out into um uh, into a, a realm of consciousness that you wouldn't necessarily uh, reach if you were just listening to a pop song. You know, it's going to go beyond. If you're into this kind of thing, it's going to go beyond a, even a pleasurable listening experience. Maybe it's going to get into your chest. You know, like the sound of it. It's going to get into your. It's going to get into your brain in such a way that it kind of nullifies uh, your thinking patterns creates kind of a blank space. In a sense, it's like an, an oral, uh, version of a uh, meditative state. It can put you into that space. So you get the dream syndicate and you get John Cale coming into a, a group of miscreants, <laughs> uh, you know, with Lou Reed and Sterling Morrison. And, uh, um, there's a, there's a, there's a collision that goes on in that group of taking basic rock tropes and mixing in the, the tonal attack that uh, Kale brings. And, uh, and add to that, uh, Mo Tucker is in this band. Uh, and she, she's the drummer, and she's not a drummer. Her brother was a drummer, but she had uh, an approach that was extremely primal really uh, stripped back and uh, it it in it, in itself doesn't sound like any kind of rock drumming when you add that to Kale's uh, tonal attack and uh, her stripped back thumping of the drums uh, or the single drum that she played <laughs> and um, you really get a sound that didn't, that you get a sound out of a band that didn't sound like anybody, any other band at all. So you've got that, and people didn't, you know, I mean, the audience for that at the time was tiny, minuscule, but a lot of important people heard that music uh, who were musicians as well, and as time goes on, their influence spreads very far and wide, and they continue to, evolve some of those sounds and those ideas, challenge the audience, make them feel something, make make them feel something they might not want to feel, make you a little uncomfortable. Um, you get, I'm going to throw Frank Zappa into this mix mothers of invention. Uh, that's definitely, uh, that is music uh, that is in some level, uh, it's undefinable in a way Uh, you can define it but i think the initial sense of oh it's psychedelic music or it's something you know it's like that's all it is or they're trying to do something to make your you know make you feel like you're on acid or something but those guys were way beyond that actually zappa was zappa didn't do drugs and that his intention was not to evoke an acid state in his audience it was to challenge their preconceptions of a performance or preconceptions of what a musical uh, structure could be uh, what a song could sound like or or should sound like um while having a little fun with it you know i mean if you're into if you're into mothers of invention uh, there's a lot of fun being had, and you can uh, explore a lot of different sonic palettes with the with those cats, and um, they get way way out there, but it's all very orchestrated and organized, and that's very very alternative, way alternative for even the the time of. The music that was being made at that time, when psychedelic music breaks out all over the place, and uh, there's a real challenge to what rock and roll is. Uh, the earliest Pink Floyd uh, sound, like that, that music doesn't sound like anything else. It's rock and roll based, but they're taking instrumentation, they're taking uh, sound effects, and they are running. Them, they're running their instruments through these uh, effects processors or whatever they had back then. <laughs> I mean, a processor. Just they're they're manipulating their sound, and then they're making uh, structure, song structures that are totally different than pop. A pop structure, in the sense of it, they elongate everything. So now this and and the Pink Floyd, the original Pink Floyd, the Pink Floyd sound, they really, they were trying to evoke an acid experience in you (laughs) because at the time their audience was all on acid. So it's sort of a feedback loop in a sense. They're taking acid and making music for people to take acid and listen to. As, uh, The great Spaceman 3 EP is titled Taking Drugs to Make Music to Take Drugs to. That's pretty much what the original Pink Floyd was. Um, But totally alternative, very, very out there. A Real exploration of sound, changing what the expectations of uh, audiences uh, could have, what you might, might expect music to be. Uh, New York music in the 70s, just the New York scene at that time with Patti Smith breaking out, television and all these different bands, this general sound, uh, the sound that was occurring then, they were off the radar. They were not a part of popular music in the 70s. What was uh, on the radio and, uh, they, you know, they eventually became what was on the radio, but It was a distinct alternative, kind of uh, there's punk in there. They're like generating the punk music really starts in New York. And then uh, the seeds of that explode in England and then you get punk music there. And and that's an alternative in and of itself, Uh, English punk, British punk. Is an alternative to the music of the day. There's such a reaction to the the music, the what was popular in the '70s. People stepping back, saying, "We want to rock and roll." It used to be rock and roll, and now it's just these big uh, prog rock acts, and we don't, you know, or and then evolution into dance music and disco and all this stuff. We don't want any of that. Where's our rock and roll? We're gonna make some rock and roll. We're gonna scare people so new york in the 70s also eventually that you know you get uh sonic youth coming out of that scene and a lot of other uh sounds that were going on that that informed sonic youth so you've got uh people in New York where the art community and the music community basically blend blend together almost completely. So music is being used as a means to make art, sonic art, uh, art that uh, can make you feel uncomfortable, art that's in your face. Uh, CBGB's is uh, raging and these bands are, they're getting in people's faces and people are getting in the band's faces. It's all a big scene and and there's a certain amount of aggression being expressed, but it's, it's a, it's a community and that's a community bonded by being outside the norm. So you have this alternative music, punk rock in America in the late seventies, leading into the early eighties evolves into American hardcore, you have hardcore punk and, um, that is, uh, definitely an alternative again to what is ma- the ma- the mainstream of the time. It also, as with uh, the original British punk, uh, American hardcore is overtly political. Unlike the British punk scene, American hardcore uh, took the uh, opposite avenue instead of going down the path of nihilism and uh destruction and what eventually became self-destruction abrasive uh being you know wasted drinking a lot or being on drugs you know speed and all this crazy stuff a lot of the uh, a lot of the hardcore punks went the opposite direction and became straight edge they uh, uh they refuse drugs and alcohol and you know vegan veganism breaks out in that scene and they get re- I mean hardcore, not only is it a sound, uh, f- super fast and really intense music th- that you can lose yourself completely to if you're in in the, the crowd uh, the, which is where slam dancing evolves from. But uh, I am, you know, you're hardcore because you're not uh, going to eat meat, and you are not going to uh, embrace uh, derangement of the senses. You're going to embrace a clarity of the senses, an absolute focus. And uh, a lot of the kids that were the leading those bands were very intense people, man, very, very, very intense. I mean, hardcore fits as a description on so many levels but at the foundation of it all uh, they were they were political and they were uh, opposed to Ronald Reagan and you got Reagan in the 80s and the uh, embrace of this dream of the 50s and everybody's gonna get real squeaky clean and make a lot of money and we're all gonna be the same and we're all gonna buy all this stuff and you know everything's gonna be amazing And the hardcore punks were like, no, no way. Not happening. This is a big, this is a put on. This is a a mind screw. You guys are coming in here trying to make us believe all this stuff. And we, you know, we've lived in the world and we know that this is a lie. And we're going to put it in your faces as much as possible. I don't know how aware uh, Reagan or any of the conservatives were of uh, American hardcore, but uh, they were, you know, American hardcore bands were raging against uh, the conservative takeover of the, of the country. And it is in all forms and fashions, alternative. It is an alternative music to the mainstream. And if you're, you're a part of that crowd, it is a community and it is, uh, it's relatively small, but uh, you are you're a part of something an alternative to what is expected and accepted and i'll go another heavy metal heavy metal uh at its most pure form is alternative music i mean you know that You get Black Sabbath making music and it scared people. That was not accepted as music. (laughs) You know, like that was a threat. And all the metal that comes after that, that really embraces that uh, darker edge and kind of embracing darkness and scaring people. uh, That's where metal, you know, in the late 70s into the early mid 80s, uh It really was a challenge to society to the they weren't political they were just it was more of a social challenge. It's like this is us, this is our music we're really angry, and we are going to rock harder than anybody's ever rocked before with the heaviest sounds of all time and uh it is not it is not mainstream. <laughs> So, you know, which is interesting because at a certain point, metal starts to get, uh, it gets popular enough that the record industry starts to try to make its versions of it, right? Okay, so this sells, so let's do a little of that. And uh, we're giving you money, all right. Well, okay, now we got you on the hook with a contract. We need you to do this. And we need this kind of song. And this sells a lot. And eventually you start to get, you know, the hair metal bands out of L.A. It's a lighter metal that uh, starts to become predominant. And heavy metal becomes just like, unfortunately, at that time, it becomes a caricature of itself. And then you get ballads and ballads. Everybody's got to do a ballad now. And everybody's going to make so much money because the ballads were what we're selling. And now you got the young ladies who are really into the ballads and you can sell so much more music. And it really, it went, it went from alternative to straight down the center mainstream. It became the mainstream, which is an amazing thing. Now, what is really interesting about that is as hair metal, quote unquote, Uh, la style sound metal became the mainstream you get a backlash against that and there is a a breed of music being played on the margins that is going to uh, be ultimately it's going to come and it's going to wipe the hair metal out and in the 80s an amazing thing one of the, I mean I said Sonic Youth, Sonic Youth is out there they're doing some essentially what is avant-garde uh, rock and roll that amazingly when you, at the time it sounded so dissonant and it didn't make any sense because it was so outside of it's uh, time what is this? by the time the 90's happened it's amazing how you can put sonic youth into a context suddenly because the sound became uh acceptable and a lot of other sounds of bands uh had broadened the palette of what music uh popular music could be or was accepted to be and suddenly when you go back to sonic youth in the 80s and you listen to it in hindsight it's like oh yeah well that's the sound of the 90s in a lot of ways But when you just have it isolated in the eighties, especially when in the eighties, when I was hearing it, there was no context for that. It's like, what is this? It sounded crazy. I didn't know if I liked it. I didn't understand it. It didn't it just didn't make sense to my ear. It was so unusual and so different. So that's going on. And there's a lot of other stuff going on. I mean, there's lots and lots of little bands like that. And they're all out there. There's this underground scene going on uh, that, as with the hardcore punk, you know, it's all underground. It's all there. But there's it's not being played on the radio. And it's not uh, being uh, bought by a lot of people. It's, uh, it's But it's there. And it's all a reaction, always. Alternative music is always a reaction to whatever's going on at the time or has gone on before. People who have uh, they're inter- the interesting people with interesting ideas and they just like they don't want to join with the crowd and they just want to do something different. And it might not be that they're trying to do something that is quote unquote original i mean you know anything that's original that's truly original isn't original to be original it's not like oh i'm gonna make something that no one's ever heard and that's like nobody's that creative i mean there are those that are that creative i suppose but for most people especially like in the rock and roll world you're picking up some instruments and you're starting to do some weird stuff to it and like i mean sonic youth they're doing all this crazy tuning and they're like sticking um screwdrivers and stuff in the strings and you know they're doing all kinds of really weird things to their instruments to make sounds that a guitar isn't necessarily designed to make so you're now expanding the palette of sound and thereby creating something original just because you're interested in it what happens if i do this and i'm gonna do this and i and that people aren't necessarily going to like it. And that's another reason I'm going to do it. I don't want you to like it. I want to challenge you. I want to make you think. I want to make you walk away if possible. And then that might leave you with something. You may like it later on. Be like, that was pretty crazy. I'm going to go back and check that out again. And then suddenly you get used to it. So, you got, by 86... Jane's addiction is out there in LA. They're, they're doing, they're doing things They're making music now. And, uh, you know, 85, 86. And, and, um, I have to say, I, I had, uh, I didn't become aware of Jane's until, uh, about 88. And, and, uh, and it was like at the time it was alien music. I never heard anything like it. It was bizarre sounding. And, um, I have since gone back and watched some videos uh i th- I believe it was there's some YouTube videos of uh Jane's in eighty six in Detroit. and that is you know, just what looking at that, I'm like, what is happening there? because at the time, Perry Farrell had uh he had like dreadlocks, really long hair. Uh, uh, I think he braided and all this crazy stuff and bl- uh, bleached blonde crazy and you know, he's got like crazy makeup on and uh, and in that particular video you know the band is playing and uh, um, you've got I mean he's just basically banging his head. With this massive, huge amount of hair, this thing, whatever it is, all these colors, and all this, it's crazy. And he looks crazy. And he's just banging his head, singing this. And the crowd is just standing there. And it is really something. You can tell they don't know what to make of it. They don't have a clue what's going on. It's like, what is this? Not only does the music not sound like anything that anybody's ever heard, not only has no one ever heard a voice like this guy's voice, this weird high-pitched voice and these, you know, the way he sings, but nobody has ever seen anyone who looks like this. Like, what is this alien? What is this? And it's there. It's going on in the mid-'80s. Obviously, a, a distinct rejection of Reagan's America. Uh, and whatever was going on in LA at the time, you know, it's like, it's very LA. It's very something way out there on the coast. And that music starts to, to, to break out a little. Now I'm in high school and uh, my buddy at the time lends me a tape, a cassette tape of their Jane's Addiction second album, Nothing Shocking. And he's like, you got to listen to this. And he's also the one who lent me um, Sonic Youth's Daydream Nation. And they both tripped me out. I didn't know what to make of any of it. It didn't sound like anything I'd ever heard. And I didn't know what it was. But I did and I didn't like Sonic Youth. I just I didn't like it. I didn't get it. But the Janes started to um, kind of started to get under my skin a little bit in a good way. Like, I I liked some of it. I mean, the thing with Janes, especially that album, is that uh, even though it doesn't sound like anything you've heard, the music ultimately at the foundation, kind of is, it's familiar enough. Like the guitar is kind of like a it's like metal guitar, but it's not. Uh, and it's hard rocking and their song structures made relative sense but the rhythm section didn't was like tribal almost you know it's like this is not like drumming and bass like a like you've ever heard and the and the vocals like Perry Farrell like what is the sound that's coming out of this guy's throat this is really weird sponsored in part by Perry Farrell's throat (laughs) so then you get It's uh, Headbangers Ball is an amazing thing at this time. Headbangers Ball on MTV, it's metal. We are living at this point in the peak of metal. This is metal nation. Metal is everything. To the point that MTV has got a three-hour television program at night. It's Headbangers Ball. It's just metal videos. But there are some weird outliers that show up on that show. And one of them is Jane's addiction. Because uh, uh, nothing shocking. They've got uh, up the mountain uh, is a video. They had two videos. And but but the sound, you know, like they didn't MTV didn't know what to do with that. What is this? It's not metal and it's not pop music. Where do we play it? Well, Headbangers Ball, because that's the closest to the sound. So I'd heard some of this music, and then I'm watching Headbangers Ball a lot because I liked my metal. And you see these videos, these Jane's Addiction videos, and they don't fit in whatsoever with the the Headbangers Ball programming. But it is it's way out there. And it gets your attention. What is this? Who is this guy? What is this sound? This is crazy. It's a whole different world. So it it starts to really get into my head. And I really start to like it. And I'm listening to nothing shocking. I get my own copy, my own cassette. And I got my car with my cassette player in my car. Cause I'm like 16 and I got a car and a cassette player and I'm listening to my Janes and I'm starting to really, really, really get into it. It still was a bit of a challenge, but I, I tended toward music that uh, I, I, I liked partly because other people didn't like it. Hey, it's alternative without the word alternative being in, in the parlance, parlance of the day. But uh, I was attracted to that. You're, you know, I'm a bit of an outlier. This music's an outlier. This is this. I'm gonna listen to this because nobody else knows what this is. But it was good music as well. As the times going on, you're getting, uh, you're getting another album. Now I'm really excited, and they're breaking out. Jane's Addiction is really starting to break out, and. Uh, they have ritual de la habitual their third album comes out and they just they crack open it's crazy it's really amazing how about 1990s when it comes out they break through the mainstream and into the mainstream and the videos on mtv are being played uh stop is popular but uh ben caught stealing just exploded all over the place and they're suddenly really getting big i know that all of that swirls onto the group and uh the the level of pressure around all of that just kind of wiped them out they weren't the healthiest boys in the in the neighborhood perry had a, a real liking for heroin and uh dave had a real real liking for heroin those guys were going way off the deep end not good at all but uh, uh that focus of media and people coming and you know wanting hey tell us what tell us what's what we gotta you know you you've got something going on you gotta tell us things tell us about your music and what are you what are you what are you bringing? and. It just kind of gets to be a real bummer for Perry and for everybody I know. And I remember at the time he just had it. So they're going to go on tour for this album, but he's done. We're doing a final tour, finished, done. This is lame. This stinks. Um, And you get Lollapalooza. Oh, wow. We came all the way back around, didn't we? (laughs) And Lollapalooza... I didn't know anything about it. All I knew was that I had some friends who had gone and see, they'd gone to see Jane's on the previous tour and apparently it was just a a debacle and that it's part and parcel for a a Jane's show, especially back then, especially back then. Yeah, you know, those guys are doing heavy drugs. Perry's is doing heavy drugs. He's drinking way too much. And, you know, they're like, they're either coming out really late to the stage or they're like they were notorious for starting and then like playing a half hour, or 20 minutes. And then it was too much, you know, it was like, Perry's done. <laughs> I'm done. And just like, you know, not being able to sing and just stumbling off the stage and rolling off the stage or being, you know, dragged off the stage or something. So, I do know they went to see this show and, and it wasn't good because, you know, they didn't play more than 20 minutes, 20, 30 minutes. But I wanted to see him. I was obsessed. I had become obsessed. This is my favorite band. I got to see these guys. Lollapalooza's going around. This is it. Got to go. We're going to go get tickets. I don't know what the heck this is. What's Lollapalooza? All I know is it's the last Jane's Addiction show. So we're going. Okay. It's a Saturday. It's all day long uh, doors at like 11, uh, 11 AM shows, uh, show starts at noon or something, or supposedly something like that. Now we're going to, we're going to rely on my, my memory here and my memory, obviously whatever it is is what it is. But I know that, uh, it was a, an outdoor show at a pavilion, uh, with uh grass, you know, the grassy uh, knoll, <laughs> up top and uh and and there were a lot of interesting people there so let me say this the cats that went to Lollapalooza 91 the first one it was just it was all the weirdos man it was all the weird kids and people you know with purple hair and colored hair and they're wearing you know crazy clothes and it was like 1991 it was before nirvana broke it was before grunge broke and there was just this this edge breaking out and like all the kids who'd been in the cure or all the kids who'd been into uh you know what whatever wasn't popular at the time you know these are it's all these kids this was not uh the crowd was not a group of people like there were no frat boys at this show there were not quote unquote normal people at this show it was all freaks and outcasts in the best way the most interesting people and i don't remember there being any particular violence which is a some saying something because at the time i had been to a number of shows um and this is this is in michigan i will give that and every show i'd been to before that there was enormous amount of violence occurring in the crowd usually well usually in the parking lot but also just in the crowd uh, a lot of random beatdowns were going on and a lot of uh, rage being expressed uh, there was just this enormous amount of violence and you never knew you had to be really careful because if you looked at somebody it wasn't even if you looked at them the wrong way if you just looked at somebody and it was the wrong somebody that was enough to get your face punched in so, not not fun. But, at Lollapalooza, that wasn't happening. There were a lot of uh, people who scared me at the time. I mean, I was like 18 years old and didn't really know much and hadn't done hardly anything. Hadn't been anywhere, really. And uh, But everybody was cool. It was good. So, what's interesting about this experience is that Not only is there no violence, and not only is it just these really interesting people, but all right, here's these other bands. I didn't know anything about what was going to go down, but here's my memory of what went down at Lollapalooza. First group, if I remember correctly, the first group was the Butthole Surfers. Now, I didn't know anything about the Butthole Surfers at all, but this is what I do know. They came out on stage. They immediately started to destroy... Everything on stage, they made a, a racket that was not what you would call music at all. It was chaos and noise and craziness, and they were running around on the stage, and they probably were up there for 15 to 20 minutes max. And when they left the stage, they had destroyed everything. All Everything was thrown up just apart Everything that had been put on the stage was ripped apart. Uh, You know, microphone stands. uh, Everything was ripped to to holy hell. And the next thing that I know was that it took a really long time for the next act to come on stage because the stage crew had to take so long to put everything back together again. (laughs) Which in hindsight is hilarious and I totally get it. At the time I didn't really understand what was going on and I was like, who are these guys? They're terrible. Well, no, they weren't terrible. And they right off the bat were kind of making a mockery of the entire experience and giving everybody the finger. The crowd and all the other bands and the stage crew. And I'm assuming they did that at every show. But I don't know. That was my experience. It was, uh, in hindsight, I find it extremely entertaining. So the Butthole Surfers kicked things off in a crazy, crazy insane way. Now I think, I think that the Rollins Band was next. I don't remember a whole lot about this. I was pretty excited about it. I did know Henry Rollins, and I knew some Rollins Band. Um, I do remember they were very heavy. And I do remember that, uh, Henry was, uh, riled up as he usually is. And he was, uh, I don't think he was very happy with the crowd. Um, I seem to remember everybody was kind of chilling. There weren't very many people down in the seated area. Uh, most people were kind of milling around up in the grass and just, you know, whatever, not paying attention. And he, uh, he was getting, uh, in people's business, uh, pretty much calling people out and uh, people were yelling back at him which just got him even more riled up and uh and I say you know it wasn't a violent crowd but there were people in that crowd who were definitely tough and they were uh you know I mean even Henry Rollins I remember there were people he's going at people in the crowd and they're just going right back at him you know it was like whatever (laughs) you know fingers are flying uh, expletives are flying people are getting you know riled up and henry henry uh kicked it out it was good but i don't have super great memories about it so it wasn't like the most amazing part of the day and then you got uh nine inch nails played uh on the first tour and i liked that first album pretty hate machine my buddy in high school had uh just picked it up randomly he was a big one for buying albums based on names and he saw nine inch nails on the cassette rack and he bought it just because of that and then you know so we were listening to nine inch nails for a solid year and a half before anybody knew about nine inch nails um so I knew who it was and it was, I was relatively excited I, I liked it but it was interesting at that time because uh it was all it was a keyboards it was electronic didn't have the loud heavy guitars and the crowd was really down on uh, Trent Reznor man he had to eat some serious uh some serious feces from that crowd and I'm assuming he did that uh regularly on that tour it was a tough crowd especially once you had some raging uh butthole surfers and uh, Rollins band in your face it was a tough one to, to take I enjoyed it uh but uh he didn't get a lot of love from the crowd at that time, which is interesting. I think the next thing that happened was Ice T came out and he uh he did a little bit of rap, but uh body count was uh there, his band, his hardcore band, body count, and they just basically blew the doors off everybody's brains. Um I was recently watching some footage uh, from the Seattle Lollapalooza body count and it was so intense Um, and it made me remember, yes, it was so intense. You got these really big black guys from L.A. and uh, they're they're dressed in the you know, they're dressed in the hood style, but they're playing hardcore punk music. And it was just, it was like so up your butt and intense to have those guys pounding that in your face. A bunch of white kids. It got people really excited. And uh, they did Cop Killer, which uh, was a very controversial song at the time. And I think it probably still is. And that was really intense. People got really excited. That was a a highlight of the day. Body count It was a really, really magnificent thing to see. Very challenging. Living Color played. Honestly, I don't remember anything about Living Color. I used to like Living Color a lot. But they were pretty incongruous on that bill. And the crowd wasn't really down with them at all. I think they were taking a lot of eating, a lot of feces as well from the crowd. They were, they were, uh, but Living me was pretty interesting. Like they were way out there too. these, uh, these guys, black guys playing the music they were playing. And it was a really complex kind of music. It was, it was really good. Um, but the crowd wasn't really digging it. It was a little too light for what had already happened. Um, And you get uh, Susie and the Banshees, and uh, that was a a highlight. People were really digging that. There's a lot more people in the crowd, and I remember distinctly that um, the, you know, actually the problem in the crowd was not amongst the crowd themselves, but it was security, as so many times, security. When there's no problem happening, and then you get these cats who are running security and they start making trouble it's so annoying when security makes trouble they're there to they're supposed to be there to you know protect the peace essentially (laughs) protect the artists but you know it depends on the scene it depends on the venue down in the seating area people were supposed to be in their seats not in the aisle way But you got all this really interesting music and it's rock and roll and it's exciting. And then you get people breaking out of the seats and they're going down the aisle and they're hanging out at the front of the stage. Well, security was just making a big stink about that. They were not into it. And they're getting rough with people, you know, these big guys, big white guys, big black guys. And they're just like big guys and they're super imposing and they can impose their physical will on everybody. And they're being violent. They're being violent. And I remember uh, that was happening during Susie and the Banshees. And Susie stopped the show and started uh, yelling at the security guy. He was a huge black guy, this big, big dude. And she just starts tearing into this guy, you know, about you know, disrespecting the crowd and like back off. And, you know, want don't you sit down and all this? And this guy just stood there and talk smack back to her and and just stood his ground i mean he couldn't do that and uh but she had a whip you know she had like this big pole whip that she's walking around on stage with and she's all in leather and she's suzy sue you know she's not gonna take anything from anybody no smack talk and uh yeah i mean she made i can't remember it anymore and it really bums me out but she used to be called like the the queen of uh something or you know the 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 it had to do with the whip and she's whipping the whip around and you know she's talking about how she's not called you know the queen of the whip for nothing or something like that and and this security guard standing there he didn't look very impressed to me but she just was you know she just kind of really Everybody was cheering. So she pretty much had owned that guy. And uh, and she was on stage and she controlled the scene. and He wasn't going to do anything about it. That was an interesting moment. Stop the show. Get down on security. You know, let the kids be kids. Stop being such a jerk. And then, and then we get to Jane's Addiction. Now, let me say this. All of Palooza was really long. Like there wasn't anything else. There was one stage. There, were, there weren't any, you know, like... There wasn't the circus sideshow, Jim Rose sideshow like there was in later events. There wasn't anything else. There was just the stage. And in between acts, there was big gaps and it was real boring, you know, like there was only so much to do. And uh, it was all day. I mean, I think we, you know, we're there at noon and the show ended after 11 at night. That's a long day. And there's only a handful of bands that played. But there were some really long, you know, you're like 45 minutes to an hour in between bands, depending on the setup and all this stuff. But we get to Jane's and uh, it's getting uh, the sun's going down and Jane's is coming out and everybody's there for Jane's. And it was it was raucous. It was a it was wild and it was really good. Uh, they were really good. It was everything that you could want. Perry, uh, being in Michigan, Perry had bought a hunting uh, the. What hunters wear in Michigan, the big orange, uh, hunters uniform, uh, you know, the whole thing he was wearing the whole thing. <laughs> it's the middle of summer and he's up there and, you know, I was way in the back and I could see him, which was the whole point that he was wearing it. But that was funny for a while and then, you know, while he had it on, but what was really interesting about that performance was at a certain point, um, off to stage right, way up in the grass, off off to my left. Somebody, some people started a a fire. They started a a bonfire of stuff because everybody had stuff there. You know, we had blankets and all, just a lot of stuff, chairs. There's all kinds of stuff. Well, a bonfire starts and it's big fast and the security couldn't really stop that one. Uh, So that's, Going and uh, it's dark now, and the bonfire is going, and people are dancing around this bonfire. And uh, there's another one that starts, it's a smaller one that starts this bonfire, and people are kind of dancing around it. But there was a moment where, in between songs, Perry made a comment about it how he's really digging the fire, and that really set people off. Suddenly, there's a whole bunch of f- bonfires starting out on the grass. The security's got, you know starting to get involved and trying you know they're getting some of it knocked out and stuff, but the original bonfire just got bigger and bigger and bigger and more people and it was this this whirl of people going around in a circle dancing and it was the most tribal thing I've ever seen. It was really a raw experience. People were just bouncing around this thing, and they were feeding it with everything, more and more stuff. It got huge. I mean the flames were way over people's heads. It was a really big bonfire and that went on all the way into the end of the show that never stopped security was never able to get control of that situation over there and I do remember when we were leaving I was taking a look over there it was astounding what had been burned over there you know there's chairs and all this stuff they really made a mess of the scene but it was so cool it was a very exciting thing so I've now gone off about my Lollapalooza experience What does all that have to do with everything I talked about before with alternative music? Well, this was the alternative music uh, bomb right here. This was actually the end of alternative music up to that time. Even though uh, history shows that it's the beginning of alternative music, uh, and at the time it was sort of touted as the beginning of alternative music, because what happens right after that is... Nirvana breaks out and Seattle sound breaks out and grunge happens and metal dies. And then you get Lollapalooza two and it's all grunge. And, and, but Lollapalooza just grows into this thing. That's really what's the popular music of the time. Lollapalooza one was a culmination of all of the sound that had been building up through the eighties. And, it was, it was the, it was kind of an ending. I mean, it was the end of Jane's addiction. It was the end of all of that. They, I think Perry felt that, uh, and I'm totally putting words in his mouth now, but in my impression of it was that they'd been on the outside and they got really popular, um, relatively quickly to the point that it wasn't, fun anymore it was an alternative and so we're going to do this final tour and we're going to do something amazing we're going to bring us this you know this massive circus out into the into the country and take it around the country and put it in people's faces and 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 celebrate the end of this really interesting band this interesting sound so you've got uh you've got what is the end of the the the, what was the alternative sound of that day And, and that really happened before alternative became a marketable phenomenon as soon as the interesting stuff bubbled up there was very quickly a marketing campaign that grabbed a hold of this and uh you know, Perry Farrell uses the word alternative, and I believe he he describes an alternative nation uh, and to describe the crowd that was coming out for his festival. And that's that's a great catchphrase. Uh, yeah, grunge. That's a great catchphrase. Let's sell it. We're going to package this now. We're going to sell it back to you. Uh you know, I, I can't speak to the other Lollapalooza tours. I, I know that uh, at least the second and third ones were pretty special, had some really interesting acts, and people were very excited by that. And the experiences that those those folks had were were very cool. You get the Jim Rose uh, sideshow coming out and a whole lot of other weird stuff starting to to get funneled in, that circus atmosphere coming in. But by and large, you know, it's in that that kind of that purity of the very first tour, as a a culmination, as an exclamation mark on the end of uh, the band Jane's Addiction and on uh, the uh, the 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 alternative music that was out at the time. Alternate the the music of as always, if something's alternative, eventually. It's going to influence uh, people to a degree that it grows and becomes the mainstream. And I, that just seems to be the way things go. That's not a bad thing. That is, that is a cultivation of fresh ideas, challenging ideas being uh, put out. And over time, people's palates grow and they evolve and eventually the the alternative to the norm becomes the norm and then it dies dies a sad death until you know then another generation comes along and they're looking at that and, you know it, maybe it's just generational young people look at what uh, was cool before and they'll see what was cool about uh th- what what had happened in the past what was alternative and then they'll look at it where it dies uh, and and they they don't like that, so they react, and they create something new, and they get very excited. So, that is my 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 podcast for this day: alternative music, <laughs> and uh, my memories of Lollapalooza '91. Uh, I will give the the admission that a part of this podcast was uh, simply to allow me to elaborate on my memories. Uh, as you can tell, I, I think I got a little excited, but it was an exciting time and I like to share that. I wanted to get that down and put that out. But overall, uh, my excitement about that that experience had everything to do with being exposed to bands and sounds that challenged me and opened me up in a way I didn't expect and I went forward from there liking new things uh, being able to accept new sounds and it was just a a great growth uh, from from that period forward that's like uh, in my life that is the water going uh, being heavily uh, doused on the seed so there you go all right, people. Make sure that you take care of yourselves and you take care of the people around you. Let's uh, let's get into a community oriented uh, thinking pattern here. Uh, the dog eat dog, rugged individualism of the uh, of America of the past. Uh, it it accomplished some things, but overall, it is creating havoc. Uh, You can't have a country without a community, and I do believe there have been times in the past when there was a sense of community in this country. I know that my grandparents experienced that and cultivated that, and somewhere along the line, that got lost. So if everybody just looks out for their neighbor and, of course, starts at home with themselves, we uh we could uh, become even greater than we could ever imagine <laughs> so there deal with it all right people have a good evening day morning whatever it is wherever you are whatever the time is the day is the the year is whatever it is i'm out